I would say there's there's work to be done. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be the quote of this podcast. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but there's a lot of beautiful work being done too and a lot that can inspire others. Hello everyone and welcome back to You Creates podcast, Many Different Birds. Broadcasting on CJSW Radio where we will hear authentic stories from special guests from all backgrounds and bridge the gap between non-Indigenous and Indigenous communities with a special focus on the Canadian healthcare system. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy comprising the Siksika, Bikani, and the Gainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bear Spa, and Good Stony First Nations. The City of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. We want to open up the floor to honest discussions and get a deeper insight into how we can improve our healthcare practices and work on our biases. Today, we have a special guest, Aubrey Ann Liberty Piwapisconius, who is a Nehia Squayu from Canoe Lake Cree First Nation and Little Pine First Nation. She is currently pursuing her studies in her home territory in the Master of Sustainability in Energy Security program at the University of Saskatchewan. Aubrey is an Indigenous youth activist and environmentalist following her ancestral teachings of protecting Mother Earth for our future generations. Her work extends to many different organizations, but one to note is her role as one of the five Canadian youth attending the Y20 Summit in India this year to take part in negotiations. Woo! Yay! <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Aubrey. And before we start, is there anything you would like to add or we missed anything while introducing you? I think I just want to say you pronounced my name perfectly. Okay, <laughs> so that's good. good. That's yeah, good. I was like, I do not want to like... No, you honestly did so good, which is great. Sometimes people don't ask and then they'll just go off and it'll be completely not recognizable. I think have, like pronouncing your name and being able to um, say it properly and like identity, it's an identity, right? So oh yeah, 100%. It's important. And I take a lot of pride in like my last name. Like I, I know like where I get it from. Like my Piwapasconius is from my Mushroom Gerald, who was like a huge part of my life and probably where like... Um, I really got to feel my connection with the land as like an indigenous person just because you know he was really connected with horses and his ranch and being out there on the land in Little Pine First Nation and so I that I love that and then the Liberty is my grandpa on my on my mom's side and I love him to pieces and he's a residential school survivor and has done so much to you know be a good a good person in our family to to look up to and continue like pushing us forward and making sure we're motivated as a family and so I take a lot of pride in that so I lo- I love it when people pronounce it correctly well, that's good because i've noticed sometimes a lot of people like like let's say would they have like ethnic names or longer names um if someone kind of doesn't pronounce it right they just kind of give up and they're like whatever yeah, yeah which is like you're not giving justice to your own name like you should tell them no my name is this because like people if, if other people can correct you then you should also correct your name when it's mispronounced and it's like a way of like decolonizing the way that we like have conversations with one another and that's so important and we we don't push that enough I find sometimes it's like we just like let people feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm. like trying to say our names but like I think we should allow that space for people to get uncomfortable because that's what's really going to make them learn that's going to that's what's going to make them put in the effort to actually try to not do that again or not feel embarrassed when they're saying something um and just be respectful in general like you can't build a relationship if someone 
mom's not even trying to do like that simple bare minimum very true mm-hmm. very true like it just goes to show, like you could just say how do you pronounce your name yeah right or like the phonetics yeah mm-hmm. yeah like those are things that yeah, I, I do not get asked enough yeah yeah Okay, so um, I know there is a Y20 event that's coming in. Um, but f- before that, I would like to let the listeners know Youth 20, in short, is Y20 Summit, is an annual event that brings together young leaders from around the world to discuss and provide recommendations on issues related to the G20 agenda. So that includes topics like economic growth, international trade, and climate change. So the Y20 Summit is typically held prior to the G20 Summit, if that's correct. Yeah, we, yeah. Have, a, we have a pre-summit and then we have the Y20. It happens like um, it happens a bit before, so then we can bring it to the G20 leaders. Yeah, so the G20 Summit is like the meeting of the leaders of the largest economies. The Y20 Summit provides an opportunity for young leaders to engage with policymakers and make their voices heard on issues that affect them and their communities so Aubrey I know you're getting into this it's like slowly happening um how did you get to this particular summit or like how did this opportunity arise Mm -hmm. yeah so there's five tracks at the Y20 summit this year and so mine is on climate change and disaster risk reduction um it's called making sustainability a way of life and so for me I really only got into like the the advocacy for climate change and sustainability space in 2020 when I got involved with indigenous clean energy and with that organization like it's a it's all across Canada it's a it's a deadly group of people honestly like um we're all trying to work towards like this goal of transitioning indigenous communities and so when I got into that space I was like oh my goodness like why was I not focused on this like way earlier in my life um because the way I connect to the land is so important to who I am um, just as a person who won't need to, you know, to connect to my mental health, but also just as like a, a First Nations Cree woman. Um, it's crucial. Like it's a whole part of who I am. It's my prayer. It's like my mother, Mother Earth. And so I really got into that space and I felt so passionate about it. And I wanted to find myself in more spaces where I could like amplify that because in that space, Indigenous peoples aren't heard from enough and we're the stewards of the land. You know, we protect... We protect 80% of the world's biodiversity, like indigenous peoples across the world. And so I wanted to like really get into more spaces where I could amplify that. And so when the opportunity arose, I I went to COP27 this year and I met so many amazing people. And I think that's where I got to, you know, kind of like an international advocacy space. And I was like seeing how much people across the world were doing to try to, you know, combat climate change together. And so then I saw this posting from Young Young Diplomats of Canada. And so YDC was recruiting and I saw that one of the tracks were for climate change. And I w- and then I looked more into it and I saw that we would have the potential to create real change and real recommendations that we could bring to these leaders um, who are leaders that, you know, they contribute a lot to climate change. And then that then impacts the countries that aren't part of the G22. So how we can kind of bring the attention to that. So I applied and thankfully YDC selected me. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm going to be heading to the pre-summit at the end of April. And then I'll head back again um, in August for the actual summit. But before that, like a lot more work goes into it with consultations with Canadian youth, especially Indigenous youth I'm trying to put a focus on when it comes to climate change. And so there's a lot that's going to go into it prior to those summits. But it's it's a cool opportunity. And yeah, 
yeah hopefully change will come of it change will come out of it and it's in india for all the listeners um who want to know so are you excited to go to india I am so excited to go to India. I think like that's always been a place that I've wanted to go. Um, I have so many friends who like go there still to visit family and they'll tell me about like how beautiful it is and like how amazing it is. And so I'm so excited to get to kind of see it. And also like for me, when I go to different countries, I want to go and like, I want to understand like who they are and what they believe and like the beauty in their culture and what they do. Cause I feel like people will go and just sightsee and then like not really learn the roots. So that's what I'm most excited about is you know really just to learn and kind of you know get that grounding there and i'm so pumped i I'm, i know it's going to be warm in august but I don't yeah. Care. Very hot. Yeah. yeah i know you said that you started um looking you got into it was indigenous what was it the in, and indigenous energy indigenous clean energy indigenous yeah clean energy. you got into in 2020 yeah what got you there Yeah, so I was in Ottawa in 2019 in October for the Can Do National Conference. And so I was there speaking on the youth panel. Mm -hmm. And there was a night that us as a youth panel, we were all sitting around. We we had finished our panel and we kind of just wanted to like debrief like those spaces can be so heavy when you're like sharing your your experiences and a lot of time that comes with sharing your traumas sometimes and so we just wanted to like debrief and we had got this message from this girl Jordan Burnoff who I'm still friends with to this day and she messaged us to go to the Indigenous Clean Energy Gathering so it was their conference that they also have that was happening at the same time in the same city like it just kind of perfectly aligned and so we went to the gathering and we met clean energy leaders from across Canada. We met people who are making real changes, who are completely transitioning their communities to clean energy. And it was so amazing. Like it was just inspiring and uplifting and you were having fun and you were laughing and we were dancing and there's throat singers and power dancers and jiggers. It was like, it was beautiful. Yeah, I like walked into the space and I was like, oh, I never want to leave this space. Um, And I'm still thankful for indigenous clean energy for like making me find my passion. And so since then, I followed their page and then they had a a job posting for an internship and I applied and I got in. Yeah. Thank goodness for them. Yeah. (laughs) Everything aligns. And I know you said you were at the Kando Economic Development Summit. Yeah. I actually went to the summit in August 2022. It was um, at Grey Eagle and it was such a fun time. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of fun. I talked to so many people and I really liked at the end we had to present like a kind of like a case yeah and so it was really fun talking with my group and i remember my group was the one who wanted to have a funeral home oh right i do remember that yeah so my group because in my group there was an individual she worked um at a funeral home on a reserve and she said that like the way that like practices on a reserve versus like when you're not on a reserve they're so different and she's Mm -hmm. like we need to have more funeral homes that are tailored to indigenous people she's like they have like you know you have your own practices of how you want to say goodbye to anyone the way you want to like you know do things and i remember when she brought that up and i was like wow like that's true like even with death and life like there's different practices to honor death too right Mm -hmm. so i remember when she brought that up and it was just a cool idea it was really fun working with everyone and just connecting with everyone and everyone in my group i was only one from calgary actually Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was nice talking to people who were, I think, I'm not too sure, but I do remember there was a couple people from like Northwest Territories. Oh, nice. And you don't really meet people in Alberta or anywhere who are from the Northwest, who are from Nunavut or like Yellow Knight mm-hmm. or, you know, like it's just nice to like talk to someone who's from 
like a kind of like a province that you personally i don't know if i would ever like go up north you know yeah. so it's like nice to like actually run into someone who's up north and like talk to them and see you know how things are so different there and yeah i really had a good time good at the summit. Yeah. yeah no Kandu's amazing like they try like i love Kandu. like i cannot say enough good things about them i sat on their board for a couple years as the national student director and just being there you can see like how they try to connect youth from like coast to coast to coast to like make sure that they develop understanding of what we're all facing because like we talked about before this podcast even is there's so much diversity um in indigenous cultures and even beyond and so it's nice because it bridges that gap between indigenous and non-indigenous youth to kind of learn how we can come together for economic development opportunities and yeah it's it's a cool event i love them they do they do a wonderful work i love can do if people aren't following them they should yeah. yeah, my favorite part was when we got to go on the reserve mm-hmm. and we were like on that little truck thing and I was sitting right at the back and my legs were like swinging out and it was just such a nice like, I don't know, the weather was so good, connecting with people and I remember we played this one game, it was with sticks. Yes. And that was really fun. We saw some bison out in the distance. Mm-hmm. Like it was just like, I would never go so deep into a reserve where there's nothing there, it was just land. Yeah. So it was just so nice to like actually be somewhere in Alberta that I would never actually go, you know, mm-hmm. so but I got the opportunity to go and see something new. So really enjoyed it. Yeah. And Sutina is like a beautiful, beautiful, like a beautiful people, beautiful mm-hmm. space to be in. And so, no, I think that was a great experience for everyone who attended that event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember you were speaking on the first day. I did. Yeah. 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 Me and Nathan Crow, who is one of my best friends, um, we opened it up with a youth empowerment session and it was so fun. Like him and I had never spoken together, but we've been friends. So we were like, this is going to be cool. And we had a good time with it. And I hope we like we brought together that spirit of empowerment you know like because those spaces are tough like there is a lot of depth in what we discuss and you know even in economic development looking at like the discrimination you face in those projects and so and how like sometimes they're imbalanced even so like we wanted to start off the week with people you know knowing why we were there and getting grounded in that and you know so they could carry with that with them for the rest of the week and it was it was so fun it was so cool I hope people enjoyed it I did I did I did Yeah. Well, if someone is actually passionate about these issues related to climate change or wellness or anything, how do how would we partake in these kind of like summits? You know? Yeah. How would we? There's like so much opportunity that I think sometimes gets missed, and it's so sad. There's like there should almost be someone who like runs an indigenous like uh, an organization that is just connecting opportunities for youth to apply to. Because I'll find that there's like summits that will be hosted, or conferences that will be hosted, or even events like where people can go speak on a podcast or go in a talking circle or anything mm-hmm. like that. And they're just they don't have the reach, you yeah. know, to get out to as many people as they need to get out to, and so. Uh, for me like what it came down to was just I literally googled or I followed as many Instagram pages as I could and I was like eventually someone's gonna share something or they're gonna post something and I'm gonna see that and I think like social media is like a really great tool for that because that's where honestly my my jobs that I've applied for or the opportunities I've applied for I would I would honestly say like 90% of them I found through Instagram stories like your main platform of yeah, networking for real like people just share them and people think I'm gonna say LinkedIn and I don't I'm like it was Instagram <laughs> For sure. Because I think that's how we like engage youth, you know, like that's where I am most of the time. That's where the my mm-hmm. kin are usually like my friends that I'm talking to. So like, I don't know, I would I just scroll or I follow the right pages that like if 
that if they're aligning with my values and my passions, especially in climate change, um, like I'd follow like indigenous climate action and indigenous clean energy and making sure that I'm like on staying up to date with what they're posting in their newsletters. And from there, just honestly, just applying for whatever I could, because mm -hmm. honestly, what is meant to be will be. And if you apply, you'll and you, you're meant to be in it, you'll get into it. Right. And I think it can be quite surprising how many people actually share the same passions and values that you have. And you don't realize it until you get into these like different circles and you go on projects. And actually this summer, I'm going to be going on a water conservation project. So I applied to Ocean Bridge Classic and I'm super excited. Yay! Yeah. That's so. awesome. That's amazing too. And like, honestly, not that's like people need to put their efforts in our waters too like our, I just bought a children's book I know it sounds a little silly but <laughs> I mean there, there's something there we love it, you gotta we learn love something. it. Yeah. Yeah. and it's like a it's like an indigenous children's book and it's about called We Are Water Protectors and I was like I love that like when I have kids I want to show them that book so it's like but not enough people are focusing on like our waters and how important they are just to our life to ceremony to connecting us to our health like all of that so that is amazing congrats I want to yeah. hear about that when yeah, you're back I'll, tell me yeah. I'll definitely keep you updated okay. I think and I did the same thing I googled like you know what kind of water conservation efforts are we doing in Alberta and then mm -hmm. I ran across this opportunity and yeah. same thing that you did with yeah. the summits oh that's yeah. awesome yeah, yeah just googling it's <laughs> like the easy, <laughs> it's easy yeah. yeah I was gonna ask you um when you did you went to G20 or sorry COP27 yes, COP27 yeah yeah um so when you went on this, uh, when you went to the summit, um, did you find that a lot of people that were there, did you find that their kind of agendas or what they were looking for were kind of similar to what you were trying to look for? Because yeah. you went as a, did you go as a Canadian representative? Kind of. So, um, yeah, that's a good question because it was, it was a bit of both, honestly, which is it's amazing and it's frustrating. So... I went with the Indigenous Clean Energy Delegation. I love them, still involved with ICE to this day, um, went through their youth programming and everything. And so I went with ICE. And so, yeah, we did come when people talked to us, like they tried to get the Canadian perspective or what's currently called Canada perspective. And so we did share a lot on that. And I spent a lot of my time in like the Indigenous people's space. So I spent a lot of time there. And what I found is that, yeah, when I was connecting with like indigenous people from around the world, like the seven regions that the UN recognizes as having indigenous groups, um, we were all like so similar in the way we looked at the world and we looked at our waters and we looked at our like living relatives. Like you'll even notice like for me, like I'm Cree, like we'll like pick up a rock and like that's a life. Like that's like a grandfather to us, you know, like that, that's a living spirit. Like that's a being to us and that we stay connected with. So when we talk about the land, it's in such like a deep way um, and it's so meaningful to us. And all of that is part of like our ceremony too. And I found that that was like so similar with other with other cultures across the world. So it was really cool. Like we were all really trying to get to the same purpose. We were all facing different kinds of climate disasters depending on where we were. But all of us at the end of the day were fighting to protect Mother Earth. We were trying to make sure that our indigenous knowledges and traditions were being heard and upheld. Like that was the end goal in those spaces. And we all had similar ideals to that that I, I wish more leaders would listen to because I really do think that's where our solutions lie. But then at the same time, I would bump into people who were there and they were in um, the oil and gas space, for example, and trying to, to show that that was sustainable. But 
in my opinion, everyone's very different, but that's it's not our way out. It's not how we're going to get to where we need to be. It's not how we're going to protect our future generations. And we need to stop looking at wealth as like wealth as like this monetary value. It needs to be wealth of the land and wealth of our youth and what they're going to look forward to and know that they were loved by their their ancestors. So we need we have a responsibility to be good ancestors. So at COP, you did find phenomenal, amazing people that could inspire you forever but then you also you know you you can get dragged down it's a hard space you know you're talking about the world's ending and we're talking about like heavy topics where we're being displaced from our lands because of climate disasters and it's it's disheartening or we're facing health issues as a result of you know being near these spaces that are contaminating our waters or our food or our animals and so it's a, it was a bit of both you know it was it's so weird you're in this middle space of feeling like uplifted and empowered and like by your by people that are share the same values as you but you're also seeing the people lobbying against that almost and trying to you know deter the progress that we could make to all the listeners cop was in egypt yes yeah yes. yeah um so my question is um what was your biggest takeaway like did you ever get a chance to kind of reflect on the people you spoke to someone who inspired you someone who said something that really stuck with you like anything what was your it could be one reflection it could be a couple but what did you take away Mm -hmm. I think for me like I was inspired by so many people at that event like there's no shortage of people that I like walked away as and like people who like were my friends going to cop I watched them advocate on an international stage and they inspired me and then they're still back here with me and we're still fighting that fight but for me, like one person that I still stay in touch with, um, her it's a woman named Cressida, and she's um, an Indigenous women's activist um, in Papua New Guinea. And Cressida is phenomenal. She I she spoke on a panel, and I was listening to her speak, and um, everything she said was about you know we we look at the earth and we call it mother earth you know like for us it's like it's our protector it's our mother we need to you know be interconnected and reciprocal in that relationship but she talks about it and she's like this is like you know a, a, a woman to us in a lot of ways but we're not valuing our woman our women in this space you know like in the climate space there's still a lot of work to be done even there when it comes to listening to indigenous women's voices and women's voices as a whole um, and their contributions and she really pushed that forward about how like our women are affected disproportionately in this area um, and then when we come to these tables we're not listened to at the same pace we need to and she was really advocating like that you know that's also our way out you know we need to listen to our youth and we need to listen to our women and we're not doing that enough and so for her to go on a stage and say that and really hold that and she still does that like back home I keep in touch with her to this day she's like an auntie to me like an honorary auntie to me and I just love her she's amazing and I wish more people would follow her work and I, I know she does beautiful work and she has so much love to share and I think she is like a walking example of like why our women need to be at the forefront like our women and our youth need to be up there because you know she's like she's saying these things but she's also doing the action on the ground and taking care of our communities at the end of the day like she she does everything from like a self from a selfless perspective and I think that's beautiful. I know you're talking about businesses and mother earth like the gap there do you think maybe um, these energy companies value Mother Earth or is it like a point of like exploitation for business and capital gain? It's yeah, it's tough because I do believe, you know, I, I'm, I do operations. I'm an operations consultant with a place called Tatonga Inc. And they're based out of Calgary. And Alec Carton is the the 
owner of Tatonga. And at Tatonga, we've worked with a lot of clients that are in the energy space that do want to do meaningful work. Like they do want to work with Indigenous peoples in a way that's going to, you know, advance our communities, our youth, our nations, hear from Indigenous perspectives and make sure that they're lit, not just like taking it into consideration, they're being led by those values. And so in a lot of ways, like in that area, I've seen so much great work being done and really great people. Um, they get places like um, Pembina. Pembina has done a lot of great work um, and Energy Futures Lab. They're really, you know, pushing that, pushing that forward. But at the same time, there's a lot of people out there that, um, that aren't doing that. And it, it is disappointing because people are because we're in this space and because it's such like a topic that everyone's talking about right now, people are finding a way to almost like twist the words that we say in this climate space. Like they're saying like, oh, you want to help your communities? You can help your communities by getting involved in these projects that have fossil fuels, you know? But it's true. Like we do want to help our communities and we do want to help them push forward. But like we want to do it in a way that also incorporates our traditional values and we can't ever let that go. And if we're truly looking at that seven generations principle of like making sure our next seven generations are going to, you know, be able to live the same way we do, if not better, then we need to be paying attention to what we're doing as people right now. And it can, it's, yeah, it's tough because there's, there's even people like in the indigenous community that are pushing, is pushing that agenda, you know, because it is true. It does, it does, it can create jobs, but so can clean energy, you know, sharing our knowledge can create jobs as well. Making space for indigenous peoples to push, you know, what we know and what we've learned from for generations and through our oral storytelling needs to be taken into consideration as well. And those can be jobs um, and those can be roles to play in those projects. And we don't do that enough, but there's definitely people who, you know, are pushing, pushing against it or, you know, using it in the wrong way. And it's disheartening and it's frustrating, but I haven't seen a youth do that. <laughs> so I think that's why it just shows even more like why we need our youth to be speaking, our youth to be sharing those things. Cause like, we'll call that out right away. Um, and I think that's so cool. Like there's a, a lady named Serena. She's the co-chair of seven, the seven gen youth council, which is like a clean energy youth council, um, across Canada, what's currently called Canada. And, um, Serena's awesome. Like I, I was with her at globe exchange not long ago and just hearing how she spoke about like her traditional stories and how she knew people who are pushing forward the wrong agenda or doing things for the wrong reason or just trying to do things, you know, to look at the monetary perspective of things. She was like so open about calling that out and making sure that that was heard and that was well known and that the youth needed to be heard in those spaces. And I think that that was so beautiful. It just showed that like our youth really are the ones pushing this change forward and we need to value that more. I know you interact a lot like internationally, like you've been into a lot of different summits and you've heard like international perspectives on like energy sources, climate change. Do you, where do you think like Canada stands? Do you think we've improved over the last 20 years or do you think we're kind of behind other nations? I think we are, are a country that prides themselves on how far they've come when sadly we could be doing a lot more. We have the potential as like a country that's doing what we do with the resources that we have, um, with the talent that we have, we have the potential to be doing so much more. Like we could be leaders in these spaces. You know, we could lead that transition, that shift, and we're not doing it because we're valuing different different things in this in this country. And it's disappointing. And we also have so much work to do when it comes 
to to bridging the gap of indigenous and non-indigenous projects coming together um, and bringing people together even just and so I think we are really good sometimes at talking the talk and a lot of other countries look at us like we're we're progressive and we're safe and you know there's nothing going wrong here like we're this nice country to a lot of other places but in reality we have tons of work to do like that's not the reality at all like you, you should see how like my people in community are treated um how the things that i faced as an indigenous person growing up in the urban city like what i faced just from people like you know not having just basic education on that stuff um what that can do and like the disconnect that that can create and so there's so much work to be done but on an international stage i think people think we are sometimes like this nice you know progressive country but there's so so much more to be done and a lot that we don't show that we that we need to bring to the surface and that comes with amplifying the right voices right and I think you've already mentioned this before, but just to reiterate, do you think that Canadian youth need to like partake in these summits and conferences and advocate for these issues? Absolutely. And I think that the issue isn't that Canadian youth aren't willing to do that. The issue is that the people who are in the positions that they can make space for youth aren't doing that. They're not doing their role. They're not doing their job in making sure that we have a space and we have a voice. Like there's one it's one thing to, you know, some people don't have us there at all. Some people will set aside seats just for youth to attend. But there's people who actually put in an effort that have us on the panels, have us educating people in industry about what we need to see. And that's where we're going to make the change. And then from there, when we're on those panels or we're in those spaces and we're in those negotiations, that's where we get added to projects that's where we get added to strategy making and that's where change actually comes from we can't be this like tokenized part of it anymore where they just make sure youth are there they have to actually like incorporate that in their actions in every step of the way and if they're not doing that you're not going to have any strategies i do appreciate though like i've seen over the years there are more youth opportunities Mm -hmm. like just on the regular basis like like you said when you're scrolling on instagram like Back in the day, like I wouldn't see as many opportunities pop up, just like, you know, casually just scrolling. But now I do like a lot of people are putting youth on um, boards and councils. There's a lot of like like a MP will have a council of youth. Um, And I think like the best reach, to be honest, I think is youth because we're I feel like as we're going up, like we're attuned to like looking at like issues and questioning things. Mm -hmm. I feel like um like older adults and stuff they've maybe they've just stopped questioning why things are the way they are but i see like youth are very like but why mm-hmm. they ask the why which is like i think is needed because that cut challenges notions and stuff so i do appreciate that youth are getting more involved but i do know there's a lot more to be done there's always more to be done yeah. but yeah it, it's a, it's a def- it's tiring to think yeah all the time about what can be done but yeah there is a lot like um i know the environment and climate change canada has a youth council now and there's um a super amazing powerful woman named sunshine who sits on that youth council and yeah that's just a prime example of you know there are our youth in those spaces and they are being put in areas where they can influence that but it's also making sure that those councils aren't you know just councils to exist they're councils that are actually going to be you know have power to have a say in what gets decided on in Canada and yeah I guess we'll see I guess we'll see that'll that'll take (laughs) time to see yeah actually you know you were talking about seven generation or something because this just this just popped in my head because in Hinduism that seven is very important because after you like there's a thing where you go like 
if you're a friend for seven years or something, it's like a lifetime thing. It's just very symbolic. I just was wondering, I was curious, what does seven generation mean? Or like, is there a specific like symbolism to number seven? In your- okay, that's so cool. Yeah. And that, see, that's another thing. That's why like people from different backgrounds have to connect because yeah. there's so much beauty you can find in the connection of like what we believe in. And my dad always taught me that growing up. He was like, you got to talk to like people. He was like, because that's, you find real beauty and real connection across the world, like with our different, like our worldviews. And so, yeah, like uh, Seven Gen is a is a youth council, but their name is based off of the Seven Generations principle. And so, the Seven Generations principle is something that a lot of Indigenous people will look at, and it's that you know the way that we're, what we do today needs to positively positively impact our youth and our next generations, seven generations ahead. And sometimes we'll even take that a step further and think we have to look at the seven generations before us and how they protected us and they loved us and the cultures and the traditions that they upheld so that we can keep that culture moving forward. And so it's, it's yeah, in a lot of ways, seven is really important to us because we are, we're always looking ahead, seven generations ahead. And if you look at that, like on a family tree, it feels like it's so long away. And I think that that's important because you have to feel that connection to your kin and maybe that's when we'll really see the importance of this, like really see the impact of our decisions today. Because if we look at that seven generations thing too, it's, it is like making sure that they can live the way we live today. But I also like to think that it's, it's not living like this because we're not in the space where this is sustainable either. You know, we need to have more energy efficiency. Um, we need to be looking at how we like interact with the world, how we interact with other people, our openness to others and that's that's thinking you know like we still got to change and so that's also why looking ahead is different because you know we want of course our next generations our kin to live better even than we're living today and make sure that they have a world that they're proud of and they feel connected and they feel important in and so yeah that seven is that seven is important and i like that i want to learn more about that yeah (laughs) the seven is like cool because like personally i can only look two generations ahead me thinking about seven generations ahead like I don't even know what that would look like or what year in the world we would be in or actually even like seven generations before me yeah like being able to even talk to my grandparents about like their generations before them like do they even have the knowledge to be like this is the way that they lived this is like you know so I think another part of it storytelling Mm -hmm. because I feel like a lot of people have stopped sharing like stories and perspectives and I think that's that's what you said like we're here and we learned about the number seven Mm -hmm. right and it's just through oral and talking and just like and if we don't talk then how will we ever learn exactly right yeah we have to have more space for those like those spaces where it's solely focused on like our oral traditions of passing on knowledge because honestly if that's where you make the best knowledge i'm not gonna yeah. i wouldn't have connected with any of you had it been us like reading a book in a room together you because yeah. okay. <laughs> on our intro video we were talking about how um classroom settings is so different from actually talking because everything is in the textbook and everything is like facts mm-hmm. and it's not like your your experiences storytelling firsthand I don't know how to say it but like you you get a deeper connection when you're talking more than just reading text yeah but like isn't it just isn't like a lived experience also a fact yeah right but, I guess yeah, yeah but like we like to say fact as in something that is uh, research something yeah. that we can visibly see, see. like in scientific research results are observable it's like mm-hmm. tangible versus yeah. intangible they're quantifiable results, right but like results can be just us talking to like seven 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't have to be seven percent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's true. It, that, I think that's like a way that we can like decolonize the way we look at mm. like the world and learning and traditions, because there's so, in my opinion, more power in that. Like way more. Like I derive the most when I can like connect with individuals like you in person, like when we're talking, or. You see, even like now, like our generations are listening to podcasts and they're like audio books, you know, like I, I, I enjoy that. Like, and I think that's because like we, there is storytelling like deep rooted in like our ancestry and our DNA that we're just, you know, we're not playing into, you know, we're not attuned to anymore. And it's like, it's so, it's beautiful. That's how you make relationships that yeah. mean something. And like, I was talking to someone and like someone asked me about like some of the calls to action, like the truth and reconciliations calls to commissions, calls to action. And someone was like, well, like, what does this mean? Like, what does this look like? Because they read it and they were like, well, what, what does that mean? Like, how do I do that? And so then I came at it with like the perspective of experiences and like lived experiences that we have as indigenous peoples connected to like that, that call. And that was when that person was like, wow, now I see why that's so important. Cause at first they're like, I just, they just didn't get it until they could connect a face or a human experience to that or a story and that's, I think, like when we're really called like internally to do something is when we can connect that to somebody. And that's where we like get our empathy, you know? Yeah, I've actually read the calls to action. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Last year I took a oh, course and I like read it and I had to kind of like reflect on it. And I had to essentially make like a reconciliation framework. Mm -hmm. And so I chose education and I chose education in all sectors because education, when you think about it, you think about schools, but I think it's not just limited to schools no right so like i had to write like a 25 page paper oh, but wow. it was it was it was really nice because i i could actually like reflect on something properly and not just like you know when you have a two-page limit you kind of have to summarize but here i could actually like dive in deep and like i discovered more issues in my own reflection of reading articles reading papers i had to watch a lot of videos mm -hmm. and um it was just like nice doing that reflection on my own because I don't think I've ever done that period. Yeah. Yeah. Because no one's ever given me the space to do that. Mm -hmm. Or in, in most cases, it is because of school. Right. And yeah. it, no one's ever given me that opportunity to do that reflection. Yeah. Okay. But talking about school, I feel like we're so in the idea of, oh, let's just get the assignments and whatever and not think about what we're actually doing and yeah. have a take a step back and be like, so what did I actually learn? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, and how can I apply this to what I'm interested in? How can I take it from the classroom to the real world and be like, okay, there's this issue now. How do I solve it? Mm -hmm. We're so in that like circle of life of just like, oh, sleep, eat, school. Yeah. Get up, do same thing over and over. Yeah. And we don't s stop and yeah. be like. Just take a moment yeah. and be like, it's why? Sad. I know. It is. It's disappointing. The thing is, I do it too. And Me I know too. that. Yeah. I know that. But I'm just like, I'm so used to it. Me too. It's so hard to break the cycle. Mm -hmm. It is. There's like, it's a world we live in. Like, even if you do want to break that, like the way the world works is based on that system of these deadlines and the structure and what you do day to day. But a really cool thing that, with people that are interested in, you know, kind of 
kind of trying to work around that that mindset is Future Ancestors is an organization in what's currently called Canada and they have something called the decolonization of time there's it's on their website um, and it talks about how we can decolonize the way we look at time and even doing having done work with their organization they talk to you about it right away when you're clients and they'll they'll talk about how you know they do it based on their capacity not based on these deadlines and these times in like the western world it, they, they'll do it in a different way based on like what's good for their health and their bodies and their family time and what they need in the world and i think that that is beautiful and if everyone could adopt that i think we would get out of that rhythm of doing things just to do them and not doing things to actually learn from them and like reflect on them and like that's a, like lived experiences is a no, another like whole other discussion that we there's just not enough time but uh, sadly but lived experiences too like I was just in a class about reconciliation in my master's and I was doing it and like at one point I was like I've known this my whole life like it, it's beautiful for me to get to be in that class of course and like get to talk to other students who don't know about it and share my lived experiences but sometimes I'm like why am I working towards a credit for something that like is like what I've known since I was a kid. Like I've experienced racism since I was a little kid. I've always seen it. I've seen my parents endure it. I've seen my grandparents. Like I have survivors in my family from residential schools and day schools. And it's like, for me, I was like, why am I getting graded on writing about my trauma? You know, why aren't my mm-hmm. lived experiences just considered for a credit? Like, and mm-hmm. it's sad that I even have to look at it as like a credit mm-hmm. and another way yet we need to decolonize in academia even. But yeah, it's just interesting like to really take into those lived experiences and like what that means and like how we're sometimes getting Indigenous people to like relive that trauma a lot of times through those courses too. Yeah, I know you said that you were doing your um, master's um, in, of sustainability and energy security. What does it mean by energy security? Because I can piece the two words together, but from what you've learned through your courses, how would you define energy security? Mm-hmm. So if you look at um, a lot of Indigenous communities in what's currently called Canada, um, there's a lot of our communities that, you know, rely on diesel, which is extremely expensive, extremely bad for the environment. Um, communities who don't have reliable energy, you know, like communities who are literally in their homes freezing during the winter time because they can't access that heat or communities that in the summertime it's so warm because they don't have access to that energy too and so it's the cost to it it's not having access to it it's being in remote communities and not being able to easily be around power sources as well and if the power goes out like here you know we have backups you know we have we have crews that come and help us but in rural and remote communities they don't have that and so energy security is making sure that we have clean solutions so that communities always have access to affordable clean energy and it's it's crucial and it's it's not just like supplying the energy too it's making those houses energy efficient you know doing retrofits retrofits and upgrades to ensure that those communities you know can call their houses homes and feel comfortable and safe there because energy security in a lot of ways it plays into you know our, our entire lives aren't us recording this podcast is relying on energy right now, you know <laughs> and so for, it means like being able to provide that sense of home and safety to people across what's currently called Canada but for my work particularly for indigenous communities or do you think current practices are sustainable or and how do you think they can become like more sustainable like how would you rate our current practices yeah like indigenous communities are definitely leading this change and i feel like not enough people are paying attention to that like 
if you look at the network that Indigenous Clean Energy the organization has, they have such a huge network, and that's because so many Indigenous peoples are taking this change seriously, like this transition seriously. Um, I encourage people to look up AJ Ishwega. Um, he's one of the the people that I went to COP27 with, and he's phenomenal. And he led like a clean energy project in his community. Um, and he's also looking at things like energy security and educating like our peoples on what that means and how they can even do upgrades in their homes. So like, I would say we, again, it's so sad we keep saying this, but there needs to be more, there's more work to be done. Right. But if you wanna feel inspired, I would look at the indigenous peoples leading this change and the communities that are doing this. Cause there are communities that are fully like doing retrofits on all their homes to get them energy efficient. And there are communities that are leading clean energy projects um, to make sure that they have access to energy in their communities that's safe and is like embodying their traditional teachings as well. So I think Indigenous peoples are definitely leading it um, and making sure that that's happening in a good way in community and making sure that they're lobbying with their provincial governments to ensure that that stays the same way and that other communities can do the same. And so I would say... I would say there's there's work to be done. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be the quote of this podcast. Right. Yeah. Right. But there's a lot of beautiful work being done too and a lot that can inspire others. So I would encourage people to look that up. Like just there's a map actually I think on Indigenous Clean Energy's website where they have pins where all these clean energy or energy efficiency projects are and it's like that are led by Indigenous peoples or in partnership with Indigenous peoples. And it's huge. It's all across Canada. And if people look at that, they'll see like there's examples out there. There's real life examples that they can take into account when they're building their own projects or doing the same things or trying to work with Indigenous communities in a better way. Yeah. So we're doing, in, in the sense of the space that I'm in with Indigenous communities, we are doing good. And there there is work to be done that other people can take part in. But yeah. we're doing a lot and we are leading in that space. Yeah, so we were mentioning COP27 a much a lot. But I just want to let the listeners know that COP27 refers to like the 27th conference of the parties. So this is like a meeting where members of countries of United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So UNFCCC for short. So during these COP meetings, representatives from countries around the world come together to discuss and negotiate ways to address the global issue of climate change. So COP27 took place in November 2022. It was hosted in Egypt and it was focused or it was expected to focus on implementing agreements made in previous COP meetings and particularly the Paris Agreement. So finding solutions to mitigate the effects of climate change. So I was reading some articles and it said it wanted to move from negotiations and just planning, which was the focus of COP26. It was pretty like vague, I think. And there was not a firm plan to achieve what they want to set. So Aubrey, Aubrey attended this conference in Egypt. And my question to you is, did they focus, did the focus move from negotiation phase to actual implication and to how to achieve this reality, like have it in reality in a sense. Yeah, I think that a lot of the criticism that COP27 have had is that it, it didn't accomplish what it was supposed to accomplish. Um, and because those conversations are so vague and because you have so many different countries coming together from different perspectives, it's so hard to push that work forward sometimes because there's so many people that, you know, ha that are highly wealthy countries because of oil and gas or because of the things that are, you know, pushing us in the wrong direction when it comes to climate change. Um, and some people who are focused on that, like wealth of it. So 
COP, I think there was a lot of amazing, there was a lot of amazing people at it that were trying to, you know, make sure that we were doing the right work and especially paying attention to loss and damages. Because like I said, there are countries that contribute so much to climate change, but they don't, they don't pay for those consequences. Other countries in at-risk areas pay for those consequences. Um, and that's so unfortunate. And so that's why those that loss in damages was a huge part of COP27 to make sure that we are doing our job in, you know, making sure we're making our own changes in each country, but also so that, you know, we're paying for the damages that we do cause and making sure that we're not being irresponsible and making other, other places suffer because of what we're doing. And so... Yeah, there's there's a lot more that could have been discussed and committed to to make real change, but there were great people there. I mean, it's hard because like, how do you expect to change the world essentially mm-hmm. in like a couple of days? That's yeah. when you just start the conversation, the planning part, it's the implementation part, and looking. You have to consider risks, risk factors. Each country, like let's say Canada versus the U.S., population difference. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you have to consider there's just there's so much more to than just one person being like, this is my country. This is what we need, blah, 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 blah. And just actually diving into deep into the topics properly. It, it takes more than just a couple days. Oh, yeah. I feel like it was overshadowed, overshadowed by like the world events that was occurring during that time. Yeah. There's like COVID-19 food crisis. I yeah. Feel like that. Like and like for me, like I focus on the energy area, of course. But in, when you look at climate change, you need to look at food sovereignty. You need yeah. to look at water. You need to look at housing. You need to look at our youth and our future generations. There's so much to it that it's it's overwhelming to cover all those topics in such a short amount of time. Yeah. But yeah, we do need to look at it less from like a perspective of like what my country needs and what mm-hmm. my country is going to do better. It needs to be more of like a global effort of what we're all going to do for our next generations. And yeah. I think that's like a gap that needs to be filled there but there there was great work done and there's lots of great people that go there but um always room for improvement (laughs) for sure yeah so i think my focus is a lot more on sustainability and how can we make like our healthcare system more sustainable i've done like a few courses in sustainability and i've done a few study abroad programs so i've always really been into how can we make our hospitals more sustainable Mm -hmm. and I know that hospitals are institutions which consume a lot of energy. They're actually the highest energy intensity um, buildings, which are publicly funded. They emit 2.5 times more greenhouse gases than other commercial buildings. And that's not even mentioning how much carbon, carbon dioxide it takes to manufacture, transport these medical equipment. So there's a lot of emissions that do come from just a hospital and they also operate 24 7 so there's a lot of energy demand there so do you think that how do you think we can make our hospitals more sustainable and do you think that this is even feasible mm-hmm. i think it it has to be we have to make it feasible if it's not feasible because we don't have a choice at this point in the world you know we need to act urgently and we need to act seriously so as much as it seems it is overwhelming don't get me wrong which can make it seem not feasible but we need to make it feasible and a lot of the times too like it's it's business you know it's companies that we talk about when it comes to this energy transition or it's housing but we do need to look at healthcare too um and what that does in the in the world that we live in like we need that and if we care about that and we care about taking care of our health then these companies people we need to invest in that you know at the end of the day 
a lot of this is it is it has to do with money too we need to invest in ensuring that our healthcare systems have access to that they have the funding to make those adjustments too because a lot of the time when we look at funding for the healthcare system it does have to go to really important things like equipment and caring for patients but we also need to have people who are also investing in the space of having that energy transition in those spaces making sure that they have access to cleaner energy as well that plays into energy security too um where i'm which i'm studying and that we have to the onus can't be on the healthcare system to just do that for themselves it's also for external industries to know what their role is in that space too so if we're looking at the transport of this equipment we also need to make our investments in cleaner transportation so you're looking at i have a good friend named Darian who's doing work in um you know working in um aviation and so looking at how we can can go cleaner in that space as well and so that's going to then play into you know the offsets that and the the different changes that the healthcare system can make too when it comes to that and not feel like that onus is on them to purchase carbon offsets when they're they're shipping things to themselves but instead to make sure that it's clean in the first place you know that we are we're actually making changes first and foremost and so i that there's a lot of work to do i think we we need to have that clean energy though like in my there's so much energy there i refer um a, an organization that also uses a lot of energy and for us a lot of we take a lot of responsibility in making sure that one day we can look at what that looks like to make our energy sources cleaner as well and so we need to do that with healthcare but we can't put the onus just on the healthcare system it has to be on us like industry investing in those changes too because it is overwhelming for sure but it can be done it absolutely can be done mm-hmm. and we're definitely seeing that like i think they are trying to take steps um i'm not sure if you've heard something called the green hospital scorecard so it's basically a scorecard that was developed by the Ontario Hospital Association and it's kind of serves as a benchmark to recognize efforts by hospitals in different sectors so that would be water conservation, waste management, pollution prevention, etc. and each hospital which participates receives like a bronze, silver or gold status and then these top performing hospitals receive like a green health award. So that's something I've actually kind of seen. I know the Rocky View ha- Hospital has one. I know AHS partakes in this. So um what is your opinion on that? Do you think these kind of little steps are effective? Absolutely. I think that like it's easy to be a pessimist, you know, pessimistic in this area. Like it's so easy to do that. And sometimes that's overwhelming and that brings on anxiety and brings on this burden. But absolutely little changes are equally as important and honestly people don't pay enough attention to waste reduction as well and like different avenues that that can go as well um because there it's not just about energy like i said if you it's about being more efficient in the way that we do things um and so if we're looking at all these like little spaces too no these little things aren't going to get us all the way there but they are a big part in the grand scheme of things of how we are going to get there you know you can't you can't run a mile without training to do smaller aspects first you know you're not going to go straight into it and so we do need to do those little things and i think that that's a motivator for some places and in some spaces to get us there and so i love that i think that's amazing and there there's like definitely work in all areas to contribute to sustainability like like i said mine is in energy but others might be in different spaces like looking at waste and then there's there's definitely like 
There's beauty in making sure that we take time to appreciate the advancements that we're making too, because it is overwhelming. It can give you so much stress too. And things like that are just as important. You know, it's that we're making the incremental changes, but it's also that we're acting with urgency. Um, and I think that that's the next step is put, bringing, bringing in those changes, but then taking them the step further to make sure that they're actually going to impact it on a large scale. Right. And I know earlier you mentioned that Indigenous com- communities are at the forefront of bringing about a lot of like this climate, climate action and climate mm-hmm. change. Do you think that um, Indigenous like healthcare as well is doing that? Do you think that they have more sustainable energy sources compared to non-Indigenous communities? And do you see that maybe non-Indigenous communities are catching on to what they're doing? I think that um, in in some ways, yes. So for if you look at Indigenous communities, it's it's different, you know, because you look at industry and they're focused on, you know, profit or they're focused on, you know, what's making them saving the most amount of money, which is also important. Um, so you can spend it on things, especially in healthcare that are important when it comes to treatment. But for indigenous communities too, we, in every single thing that we do, it has to come back to our culture. It has to come back to our values, our traditions, who we are as a people, our ancestral knowledges. And at the forefront of our knowledges is connectedness with mother earth. So in a lot of ways, we're leading in this space because we're leading with our identity. We're leading with our culture. And that comes with making sure that what we do is done in a sustainable way. Because if we're not acting sustainable, sustainable, how are we expecting the rest of the world to do that? You know, And we all we can do is hope that other people are catching on and hopefully feeling inspired by that. And I think a lot of people are. Like a lot of people change their businesses so that they can partner with indigenous communities to have those at the forefront. Um, and so we are doing that because we're leading with our hearts because if we're not doing what we need to do, we're harming our animals, which we hunt then to live off of. And we do that also in a sustainable way. Like you look at the stories of the bison and how we used every single part of it. It did not go to waste. Um, And like, it's little things like that, that like you don't think play into it, but they do. So you have to look at that, that traditional teaching, the ancestral knowledge that comes there too. So yes, indigenous people are doing that. But that's because it's our way of life. It's who we are inherently. And if other people acted in that same spirit, then they would do the same. But I do think people are getting inspired by it and they are going to do that as well. Right. And do you think our hospitals are trying to incorporate more like Indigenous practices and ways that Indigenous peoples want to be cared for in hospitals? Do you think we have that space currently? I Not, not at the level we need to. I think, I think some are, I would say definitely some are, there's, there's always people who are fully for making those changes. There's some that are in the middle and there's some that very focused on Western science. And so there is, there is interest and there are people who are having like healing lodges. Like it's, if I look at health, I don't just look at health as like our physical, it's also like our mental. And you um, look at like healing lodges that exist for people who have been through the correction system and how that actually creates much better change for people who are inmates than being in these correctional facilities instead, because it promotes healing. It doesn't promote punishment. It promotes healing from what caused you to do that. And so if we look at that in the healthcare system of like within our hospitals, if we can look at holistic healing as well, we can prevent a lot of the reasons that we go into the hospital sometimes too. And so, 
that's why a lot of people too, when they talk about the healthcare system, they're talking about um, environmental racism because then we are closer to things that are going to impact our livelihoods, you know, have higher risks of cancer because we're by, you know, places that have oil spills or that are impacting our wildlife that we hunt and then live off of. And so we find ourselves in the hospitals relying on these Western systems and these medicines when in reality, if we could shift to, there's medicines with our plants that we need to pay attention to. And some places do have that. Some places have ways where we can connect to our bodies and our minds and our spirits. But some are like, here's your your yeah. prescription and get better, <laughs> you know? But that's not always the way, you know? There's so many other avenues to take and some do that in a really great way. Um, and some people don't. They're a lot more pessimistic about opening up their minds to that. Right. And do you think that's a, because of a lack of awareness or a lack of open-mindedness? Like. What, why Trust. do you think that is? I think it's, yeah, probably a, probably both, probably all of the above, you know? <laughs> like, because for so many years, we've ignored, like, pe- like, people have ignored the teachings of Indigenous peoples and the knowledges that we hold, our plant medicines, you know? They've, they've completely disregarded that and moved over to what we've researched for years and what's been in labs, you know? But if we could shift our focus, it's probably way healthier. Um, it's the way that our people lived before, so why not evaluate it you know and so it's a probably a lack of awareness you know that for a long time there was not there's still not education in schools about our plant medicines for the most part I never learned about it growing up and my sister just went through education she didn't learn how to teach that to her students either and so I think it's a mixture of that awareness so that plays into our education system as well and then it is like the lack of open-mindedness too because even if you do have that knowledge and you see that some people are going to think why aren't we just sticking with what we were already doing what was already working when in reality we could shift and maybe we'd feel better in our bodies too in a lot of ways because it'd be healing with mother earth you know i've seen like a lot of policy making like let's say like back in the day you go like five years back policy making was the founding like result again results having something that's observable tangible, tangible. was the foundation of making a policy mm-hmm. so now that we're as youth or as people who are kind of like let's say gen z like we have to ask the questions of why are you doing this why are you doing this so we don't just look at facts cold hard facts of this is this is this and this is that but we look at but this can make someone feel this way mm-hmm. so we add a bit more like empathy we add a bit more of like that touchy-feely type you know and i think like policymakers are essentially more on the older generation yeah and mm-hmm. they don't operate or they don't see the world in that way so i think like changing policies is something that i guess maybe we might not see a complete change in this generation but i do think like there are very small changes and some leaders are actually open to it Mm -hmm. but i know like some leaders just don't that's not the way they operate that's not the way they see policy and i think policy needs to be a middle balance between let's see the facts but also like you know like how does it make someone feel this way or how can we look at healthcare and not just you know medicine helps but you know physical activity helps Mm -hmm. you know social services help having healing groups help looking at like the prison system and not just looking at they did something bad and so they're put in jail but it's like you have to also consider why did they do that yeah was it their like circumstances that led them to that way can we help them so that we don't we're not putting so much funding in like all like the jail system and all that stuff but like we're actually helping people get better and be more productive citizens Mm -hmm. so it's like that shift i think 
we're working to it there still. <laughs> but I think like when you were talking about that, that's like a reflection I had because I'm like policy is even now when we like to evaluate policy or uh, it, even in business classes, they operate on this like it's like this like four table. I forgot what it's called, but they make like a table and they like to see like the costs and the benefits and the pros and the cons. Oh, like SWAT. SWAT. Exactly. Yeah. <coughs> even with SWAT, you're looking at what? Again, results based. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And like another thing I wanted to ask is like, let's say if we make energy systems and hospitals more cleaner, more sustainable, I think like just in general, like it takes so much money to create, let's say, a technology, a healthcare device, a healthcare technology. And already just to access healthcare is so expensive. Mm-hmm. I just like, do you see the ri- the costs of healthcare rising by implementing more sustainable energy systems and creating, making practices a bit more sustainable because already healthcare is very hard to access. It's very expensive. And there's so many al- there's so many issues already in the healthcare system that do you see that they they kind of you know kind of balance it like do I put more money into let's say reaching out to communities making things more inclusive or do I focus my energy and all my um, resources on trying to create technology that's more sustainable mm-hmm. like do you see a middle balance or what do you what do you think about that mm-hmm. I think a lot of people see it that way too but when we look at you know transitioning to cleaner energy sources the upfront cost yes it is quite a bit to look at and it can be overwhelming to transition to that system but when it comes to the actual like electrical work it's not hard to switch over to that um and in the long run there are tons and tons of studies out there that show that in the long run the costs of operating facilities when you transition to greener energy are so much lower Mm-hmm. Because we're not paying for those fuels to co- those fossil fuels to you know go up, and you're not paying for oil and gas to you know be powering us. We're instead you know utilizing Mother Earth. We're utilizing you know whether it's wind or the sun, or we're using um, like bioenergy. We're utilizing what we already have, and that's in in turn making our costs go down. So. If, you know, if you look at it on a smaller scale, which is sometimes, you know, easier to understand is like if you look at your house, you're paying for energy that comes from your utility, your provincial utility or whatever you use in in Saskatchewan and SAS power. Um, So we're we're buying that power from there, which is coming from oil and gas sources, which we have to pay for because they have to pay for that to come to be extracted and used. But if when my house got solar panels, um, then our energy was coming from, you know, the sun. And that was in turn helping power our house, which lowered our power bill because we didn't have to use as much power from the utility. And we were then instead able to use cleaner energy, which lowered our costs. But also, you know, it kind of felt good as like a person to know that like what you were living on was, you know, something that was cleaner. It was better for the environment around you. And so our costs went down and then, you know, we saved money that we could then, you know, put into other things that our family was important to us. And if you look at that on a bigger scale in the healthcare systems, 
it would, if we did that on a large scale for them, it would lower their costs for those operational costs that they could then put into other spaces. So yes, that upfront cost can be overwhelming, but that's where we need investments. That's where we need people to get on board. And when we do that, in the long run, the operational costs of these facilities is going to be much, much lower that we can then invest those dollars into other places and in holistic healing too, um, where we can like change our systems, but also build on that. You know, it's not about just relying on Western science or Western knowledges or Indigenous teachings. It's br bridging those together. You know, that's what reconciliation is, is bringing both together, not valuing one for the other, but making sure they, they're working with one another. And so that's that's what we need to look at too. It can be overwhelming, but in the long run, it is what's going to be a solution for us. Yeah. One of many. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I know you're talking right now about business, policymakers and all that. But I know you also talk about holistic... Um, sorry it was holistic in healing and plant medicine and all that so from your personal standpoint how can we make healthcare practices more indigenized and inclusive of indigenous ways of knowing yeah there's so many opportunities so much opportunity for that and it's it's yeah. exciting and i i hope more people adopt it but like for me like when i have a toothache growing up my my mom and dad would be like i, I would have rat root you know, like you don't hear, I'm not going to go to a doctor and the doctor's <laughs> going to be like rat root, you know, like they're going to be like, here's some medicine to manage the pain, take an Advil, take a Tylenol, you know, that kind of thing. Um, if I'm going to get like sick, um, like motion sickness, I'll be like, take a gravel, you know, um, but growing up for me it was actually really cool because my family didn't like rely on that so much they relied on other ways of doing it so like for us too it was about you know having that rat root when you had like a sore tooth you know making sure that you had that having certain teas if you had an upset stomach when covid came around and we had to take care of our immunity we had skunk oil which sounds mm -hmm. sounds a bit nasty it wasn't i promise i took it <laughs> um but we we had skunk oil you know so we utilized the plants the animals what they had growing up i had eczema like really bad on my arms and i i have you know discoloration on my arms now because of it but what actually ended up healing my eczema and i haven't had it since i was young was bear grease you know so it's things like that that are really beautiful and they come from the land they come from nature and those can heal us we need to use them in a right way and appropriately so that we're not extracting more than we need and not disproportionately affecting our other living animals and beings um but there's so much healing power in that you know when we we rely on that and from that i felt better you know i wasn't putting things in my body that i felt weren't meant to be there things that weren't already part of you know nature and so it was really beautiful. I felt better about healing because of it, mentally even. And I think that comes with it too. Like if you look at your gut health, even there is medicine and you know pills that you can take and supplements. But there's also sometimes we need to just heal our able to heal our mentality, like our anxiety, and then that in turn, like in yoga, we were talking about yoga before this. I learned how to like breathe so it promotes rest and digest. And it was things like that, you know, that you can do to kind of help your gut health too. So there's so many different avenues that you can take too, that you can take the pills and the medicine that are going to help too. And don't get me wrong, like those are amazing. Those are great in helping too, but also that we're looking at other avenues for the people who want to take those avenues. Yeah. Talking about homemade remedies and yeah. stuff. Um, in my culture, we have something called haldi dud, which is oh basically turmeric, <laughs> which is basically turmeric uh, milk, and we yeah. drink this when we're sick. Oh so it's God. like, yes, there's pills, supplements, and all that, but I feel like having these homemade remedies, it feels like 
I don't know. I think you have a mental connection to it, so it, yeah. it's like a help to. I don't know how to say. It's funny in a shape. You mentioned it because I was actually just thinking that. Way. I was yes. also thinking yeah. that. I'm like, my dad forces me to like drink turmeric and milk and I'm like what is this helping me with like what is yeah. turmeric gonna do but like it helps with inflammation and oh. it's a natural thing turmeric helps with inflammation and on the plus side turmeric plus milk is so it's like this it's sweet it's actually really good so just oh. have it on the regular honestly yeah. it makes your teeth a little yellow <laughs> I think too like with holistic healing is it's not just it's it's really beautiful in a lot of ways too because it's not it's not just reactive. Like once you get an infection, it's about being preventative of like what you can get too. Like making sure you're you're taking care of your body, making sure you're getting the right amount of supplements, making like making sure that you're eating properly. You you know what your plant medicines are if they come up, so you can address them right away instead of it getting further to turn into something like an inf- infection. And so there's a lot of potential there, and I think that uh, it, like it, like we've all said, it connects our mind to it too. You know, that it, it gets a whole body thing. Like our healing is a whole body thing. It's not just you know. I hurt my arm, so I gotta help my arm. You know, it's like I gotta really connect there. You know, and I think that's where like real healing comes from. Because a lot of times when you're healing from sicknesses, even like there's trauma in that. And if you can do that in a way that protects your mental health too, that's so important. You know, you kind of talked about how in the healthcare system you've experienced racism. Mm -hmm. You've seen um, your grandparents, your sister, um, your parents. How, like, for you personally, how did that make you feel? Because, like, I know sometimes when I go to certain parts of Calgary, and this was when I was really young, I would say I was probably in grade five, 10 years old. I'm walking down the aisles of Superstore in the cereal aisle, and I felt out of place. Mm-hmm. And I've been in Calgary since I was six, you know? So, why am I out of place in this special quadrant versus when I go back to my quadrant, I'm like, this is home. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I feel safe here. I can walk in any store and feel like, okay, like I'm welcomed here. But I walked into that store, walking down the grocery aisle at 10 years old, feeling like, why are people looking at me weirdly? Why do I feel weird? Mm-hmm. You know, so kind of just how you kind of, what was the first time kind of reflecting on it too? Because I reflected on this a couple years back when I kind of like actually made note of, oh shoot, like that actually happened, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it's sad because it's like people think it's like just a one-off like that happens and you deal with it and you're mad for a minute and it's gone. It's not. It stays with you literally forever. And so it's hard. Like my my mom is like a, a principal in in uh, high schools and my dad is an electrician and um you know my sisters in education and social work my brothers in school post-secondary i'm in this like clean energy space and corporate social responsibility space and for us like we, we do really well for ourselves like we're really proud of where we are we're very connected to our culture but that comes with so much too and so like sometimes you get it from both sides i found growing up sometimes because i grew up in the city i didn't get to grow up in my community. My parents wanted to raise us in Saskatoon because that was where their work was. That's where we could go to school. And so for us, sometimes like we weren't, you know, indigenous enough for our First Nations friends. And we weren't, um, we weren't, we were too indigenous for the people who weren't. And so growing up, like I'd be in elementary school and kids, kids, like young kids, like I was in like grade four, would be like, go back to residential schools. 
or like it, it's heartbreaking or I would we I'd watch us get followed in stores or I went to a doctor once um and the doctor did not believe I was sick I don't I have no idea why did not would not believe I was sick and chalked it up to that they thought I got abused at home which I did not I came from the most loving home I love my parents like I love my whole family um and it, it's just it's disheartening like you carry that with you and then that in turn creates a lot of distrust in the world so like even today like I'll go like walk around a mall or I'll go grocery shopping and I'll be like is this person following me because they're just making a loop or are they following me because of the color of my skin or are they just following me because they think I'm going to steal because of these stereotypes that they have um and so it's it's tough and like for me even like and like first nations people on time are labeled incorrectly as you know alcoholics so i'll go uh, i would go and have a drink with my friends and then some racist person would make a comment about how you know all your people are like that you know and you carry that with you in so many spaces so you you're not able to trust anybody and it's tough it's really hard because there's as a result of that hate you get outside of your communities there's then hate built up in your community and there's that lateral violence aspect of it too and so it's really really difficult and yeah like I think I think I've always known it and it's it's sad because like you can be like a little little kid and realize it but you can't put a, a name to it you can't call it racism you can't call it discrimination yet but you know it's there you know what it is and it still exists to this day heavily like heavily like there's not a not an experience I have where I don't face it sadly enough the same with many people of color um and it's it's hard because people aren't willing to educate themselves like it's and that's what's the most frustrating part like there, there's just some people who my dad always t t tells me like especially being in like this advocacy space I get so frustrated and worn down and I get such bad anxiety and my dad's like you can't teach people who don't want to learn yeah. and he would always tell me that and he'd be like you can't get frustrated by that stuff and then I'd talk to my mom and I'd be like how don't you let it bug me and she's like it's when you deal with it your whole life like you're used to it and that's just disheartening and to watch my grandpa who has survived so much go through what he went through my musham who passed away with what he had faced in life my dad who's like a, a, went to day schools a survivor of day schools is, it's just it's sad and there's there's still people who don't tell their stories and that's because it was so bad and people don't listen to that they don't pay attention to that or like when those burials were found when the grounds were searched people would be like oh that was just because there's illness there weren't there weren't cemeteries at other people at other schools yeah. so why was there at indigenous schools and um and they're not schools either i hate calling them schools but it's a result of what's happened for years and we still face it today and it's tough so like for me because of what i faced when i went to go see a doctor and them assuming i came from an abusive household just because of my last name and the color of my skin like they don't even have to look at me they'll see Pewapasconius and automatically judge me and I can see it on their faces or one time I was driving um my partner home um a, a long time ago and we were pulled over and I was totally fine I was tired I was in my pajamas I was ready to go to bed and he was totally nice to me totally friendly to me it was dark and then he saw my license he saw Pio Pasconius and I he made me get out of my car he pushed me against my car my hands were behind my back I had to do a breathalyzer I had to walk the line and it was really really tough like it was not a fun experience because I knew that the second he saw my name even because it was dark and he couldn't tell that maybe he couldn't tell right off the bat that I was indigenous the second he saw 
my last name. It was a totally different way I was treated. And I still carry that with me. I don't trust cops because of that. I don't trust doctors because of what they said to my parents that day. Um, I tore my meniscus and they didn't believe that my meniscus was actually torn and I was like in high school. Um, and so it was just, you lose trust in the systems really fast that way. And it's really hard. And I feel like once you lose trust, like it's with, it's with anything, once you lose it, it's very hard to gain it, especially because when you're talking to, let's say, your family doctor and they're not treating you the way you want to be treated, it's so hard to find another family doctor. Mm -hmm. And that family doctor might do the same thing. So now you have two bad experiences. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you just give up because you're like, I don't want to try. Yeah, I'm exhausted. Like, why am I putting so much effort into taking care of my health or taking care of this or that when there are people there who are specialized in also helping me with that mm -hmm. but they're not and it's like you can't take yes you can control your health but you have your limits too yeah exactly. you can't prescribe yourself medication no right <laughs> like you have to go see a specialist if you have something like you yeah. can't just do stuff on your own so it's like hard to like find that middle balance like i actually like i work with this organization and um, basically her chiropractor she she's very she's open with her story mm -hmm. and her chiropractor when she said that you know I don't want dry needling like don't give me dry needling he what did he do he put the dry needle in her when she wasn't even ready for it and mm -hmm. this was her chiro that she's had since she was a child mm -hmm. so she's like I don't know why this changed you mm -hmm. know and she was telling me and she's like I don't like going to the doctors anymore I hate doing this she's like I don't like going to my physio she's like and because of the way that they've treated her and just she's got she was put on H after you know she's like now I'm practically homeless and just like how one situation can just a domino effect into like bad things yeah not even good things just bad things for her so like I can see like how once you lose trust it's just so hard to even be like you know what I want to try it again because you have no energy effort left in you to try again mm -hmm. right exactly yeah it, it plays into everything else and I, I watch my sister go through it like she's a type 1 diabetic and she's dealt with it her whole life like with people doubting her or not believing what she's saying or assuming she just wants a certain prescription which is ridiculous be, just because of like what she looks like or because they don't they honestly like they don't have respect for you sometimes if you have like a certain skin color and it's so disheartening like they just assume these oversimplified stereotypes of so many people and I think that there needs to be more training in that space because if we're taught from a young age that these are the systems that are going to help us but you're not going to teach those systems how to actually help us and help all people that you're just going to keep creating those toxic, toxic cycles in these people's lives and then blame us for the reason we get into those spaces sometimes. So there's a lot, a lot of work to be done as with anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's definitely disappointing that we're hearing stories like this and it's 2023. Like yeah. I'm, I'm disappointed, but I see it in the hospital. I volunteer in the emergency. So I see, I definitely see experiences and things like that. I've faced discrimination. Mm -hmm. I felt I've had my own experiences. So it's very disappointing. But that's why we have this platform where yeah. we can talk about these experiences and not, yes, criticize our system. And when we do have these open conversations, we are able to bring about change and we're able to let the larger community know that these problems still exist these are not just you know past problems we're still facing them we're going through them 
And that comes back to our own campus community. Do you think, how do you think our students can become more aware of certain issues, whether that's discrimination, whether that's climate change, whether that's energy sources? We've talked about so many different issues today. What do you think our youth need to do? I think that in a lot of ways, like a lot of people come from very privileged spaces. You know, the people who have a lot of the say come from very privileged spaces sometimes. And so what they need to do is really just, it sounds so simple, but it really isn't. And I think this is where I've had a lot of the most of my troubles is that they don't listen properly. You know, like I'll tell people, like I was on this student group once and I was a VP of charity at the time. And I was telling one of the people on the executive, I was like, I am facing discrimination from this person. You know, this person is I can see what they're doing, but they're doing it in such a strategic way where there's no one else around or they'll say it in a certain, they'll use certain words that I can't actually pinpoint to another person how they are being racist um, or how they are being rude or dismissive because they're so strategic about it. And so then in turn, I because I couldn't physically put it on paper, or like we said, I couldn't have those facts of this, this, and this, and there wasn't witnesses. I couldn't prove to this person in any way that what was happening was wrong. And because of that, that person didn't believe me. They weren't listening to what I was saying. They weren't trusting my lived experiences. And so I think what we need to do is we need to listen. We need to know that if that person feels that they're feeling that discrimination, that racism, those barriers, they're not just saying that to say that. They're saying that because they unfortunately usually know exactly what that feels like, exactly what that means, even if that person's being strategic and not saying it in a certain way or doing things in a certain space. Um, that's We need to listen better. We need to be, we need to trust and we need to believe the people who bring these stories forward because we do not do that nearly enough. We, we place doubt on their own minds. Like I had this person placed out on my mind that this was even happening. And looking back on it, it was completely wrong. And it was so, it's something that I still like look back on it. I'm like, oh, now I feel weird ever trusting like leadership, you know? And so we just need to be more active listeners and we need to trust that when somebody knows something's wrong that is wrong even if that's not from our own experience we have to trust that that person knows what that experience is for them and stay true to that and really hold people accountable i like how you said their experience like their own experience from them Mm -hmm. right like you have to trust what someone's going through even if you've never gone through it Mm -hmm. they might be going through it and even if you have like we say you know there's individual differences the weight that we put on certain things can be different, mm-hmm. right? And the yeah. way that certain things that we've gone through in our past, our traumas and stuff, mm-hmm. that can lead us to, even if you've gone through the same thing, to react to it differently. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so to wrap up here, because we've had a beautiful conversation, I feel very, very inspired today. Um, you're you're so powerful, you're very inspirational, and we're so glad to have you on our podcast today. But before we wrap up this episode, I would like to ask you one more question. If you could leave our listeners with one main idea or a takeaway for today, what would that be? I think it, the main thing would be to, you know, 
build kinship with indigenous peoples you know like i think what we've had in this conversation is so cool like as people who come from you know different spaces backgrounds teachings and like even before we started recording we had really beautiful conversations and we were finding connections throughout this whole podcast and like i now i feel like a deeper relationship with all of you and i feel like it's something that's like it's true there's reciprocity here there's so much trust here like i don't tell like some of the stories that i just told to any like most people and so I think like build true kinships like with people because like that's what's gonna actually like be our solution out of a lot of the troubles that we have it's that it's that we don't build those deeper connections we do it from a transactional perspective not from an interconnectedness perspective and so for that I think if we're gonna build real change in healthcare or in sustainability and climate action it's gonna be through building meaningful relationships and seeing the beauty in our differences and how those can come together I think that would be the, the primary thing and not to take that lightly because if we don't do that, we're going to just be stuck in the same cycle of I'm doing this, you're doing that, but they're not coming together. Yeah. I feel like we say that a lot that like there's beauty in differences, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's just something that we like just say, but we never actually sit back and reflect on that statement. Yeah. Like what is beauty in difference, mm-hmm. you know? So that's like something that like I just like in papers we write it, we say it to people to prove a point, but like I feel like we never actually reflect on what it means for me or what it means for you, what it means in a space, in a system. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, the reflection piece, I think, like is also needed. Too. Absolutely. Yeah. Self-awareness is key as well. Like we all contribute sometimes to these spaces that are toxic and we need to know what our role is in that and how we can change that. Mm-hmm. I agree. But no, thank you so much, Aubrey, for coming. I know you came all the way down from Saskatoon. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much. And it was really nice seeing you again and connecting with you and just learning and hearing your stories and just learning a little bit more about like the kind of energy field. That's something that I'm very brand new to. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of even COP Y20. You know, I saw it online, but just like truly knowing someone who who went there and just hearing your stories. It was really nice. Thank you. We want to thank CJSW, the Indigenous Global and Local Health Office, Grandmother's Lodge, the UCREATE team, and our editor, Atia, for helping us with this podcast. Keep a lookout for the next episodes, and until then, stay warm. Stay warm.